Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored and president of the nonprofit Media Freedom Foundation. To date, he has co-edited 13 editions of the project's yearbook, including most recently Project Censored State of the Free Press with Andy Lee Roth. He is also co-author with Nolan Higdon of United States of Distraction, Media Manipulations in Post-Truth America, and What We Can Do About It. 2019. And earlier this year, Let's Agree to Disagree, a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy, co-authored with Nolan Higdon. Huff received the Beverly Keys Educator Award as part of the 2019 James Madison Freedom of Information Award from the Society of Professional Journalists, Northern California. He is Professor of Social Science, History, and Journalism at Diablo Valley College, where he co-chairs the History Program and is Chair of the Journalism Department. Huff is executive producer and host of the Project Censored Show, a weekly syndicated public affairs program that airs across the U.S. on Pacifica Radio. I welcome Mickey Huff to Savage Minds. Can you talk a bit about Project Censored and what that means? Because you and I both know <laughs> that one of the biggest travesties that has been going on for quite a while, but especially since quote-unquote global war on terror has been the suppression of journalism journalists i mean many people listening to the show might remember that photojournalist who got canned because she published the sacred photos of the american coffins draped in the flag but it goes way deeper than this so i was hoping maybe you could kick off by telling us a bit about the state of the free press today yeah i could and thanks so much for the opportunity to to come on the program um you know, you mentioned sort of the milestone there. <laughs> uh, you mentioned um, the war on the global war on terror, so-called, or rather, war of terror. Um, and there, there have been significant changes. You know, since then, all more draconian, and you know, sort of going in the opposite direction of what it means to have a truly free press. And um, so, I guess we, you know, we could dive in at multiple parts. I'd probably go, but you, you asked about Project Censored first, so. Um, this will help help us go down memory hole lane, I guess. Um, project Censored was founded in 1976 as a sort of media literacy project at Sonoma State University by Carl Jensen. And um, Jensen, interesting, the, the genesis of the story is interesting because, you know, right now is, is the 50th anniversary of, you know, going back to the Watergate scandal, so-called. Um, and, and at the time, the way people remember that and the popular memory is that uh, the intrepid superhero journalists Woodward and Bernstein, you know, flew in and saved the day, and the system worked because the press was a check and balance against the corruption of the Nixon administration, and that story is partially true. Um, but what Jensen looked at is what it, what Jensen couldn't understand in 1976 was why it took so long for that story to to break in the legacy or established media, and he realized that independent alternative press had actually been on the case and had been following a lot of the corruption of the Nixon administration prior. So that led to this big question, what else are the legacy media missing? What else are they not reporting? And the bigger question, why? Um, was it an oversight? Was it an editorial decision? Was it a lack of staffing? So Jensen started this research project called Project Censored, where he would have students in his class look through independent alternative um, publications. And then they would comb uh, and this is back in the 70s, going through the 80s, 90s. The reason I'm saying that is no internet. <laughs> this is this is hard copy in your hand stuff. The 
that the students would have to comb through. And he created and he called together a list of expert judges, journalists, academics, and others that would then look through, vet, and rank the stories on the basis of what they thought were the most significant that the corporate media either didn't cover at all, or if they did, they covered it in an extraordinarily skewed, partial way out of context. And so that was the birth of Project Censored. And uh, since then, you know, Carl went on, uh, Carl passed away a number of years ago, Peter Phillips took over the sociologist, and I've been director and working with Andy Lee Roth there since 2010, um, projectcensored.org. He added several different categories to problems with media, like junk food news stories, you know, the billionaires in space, you know, constant coverage of the Depp Heard trial, things that fill our minds that we can't seem to escape, even if we don't want to know about them, um, part of the bread and circus element of media. And then news abuse, Peter Phillips coined, to literally mean propaganda. So, um, you know, in the last five years, everybody's been crowing about the problems of fake news. But as you well know, there's nothing new about censorship, propaganda, deceptive messaging. Uh, and we, we can go back quite a ways, you know, uh, Nolan Higdon, whom you had on recently, co-author of a couple books with me, um, has a book called The Anatomy of Fake News that actually talks all about the history of fake news and propaganda. And this kind of issue, propaganda often thrives on censorship because the best kind of propaganda, going back to people like Jacques Ellul, um, uh, the French philosopher, they said the best propaganda is actually true. It's just often out of context or it's missing some key elements to allow people to analyze something more in depth. And this is, so this is really the challenge we face. Now that everybody seems to be worried about mis and disinformation, it's, it's basically a Trojan horse for the establishment to sort of regain control of narrative to say anybody that has a counter-establishment narrative is disseminating fake news. Censorship and blacklisting and this kind of thing are age old. And we've long argued that the real antidote to these problems is critical media literacy education, not censorship or blacklisting or curating information for the public. Well, that's exactly what you and Nolan did in your last book, which I do want to get to in a second, but I want to touch upon a point you just made right now. You compared fake news to propaganda, and obviously, well, they're one and the same thing, because if you can convince people that the thing they need to be following in the world today is the herd depth trial, then you've done quite a coup. You've definitely manifested some force over the public to be able to convince them that it's not even the war in Ukraine, and God knows that's been handled badly too, but let's just say they take a break from the war in Ukraine to the bombing in the courtroom. And it was really shocking to me, given the way the war in the Ukraine has gone, and we ran a piece recently on this, <laughs> why is there only one narrative accepted? And this is the thing, <laughs> it's not just overt censorship, as people think of censorship and they want to go back to you know, where the church approved mm -hmm. or disapproved certain books or films, or they want to think about the worst of the Soviet Union. But the censorship we're talking about is much more subtle and it's much less visible because we've been fed so many Cold War fictions and histories about what censorship should look like. Therefore, what we're doing is a kinder, gentler, re-educating you, right? To go and get educated, you read all over Twitter. Yeah, right. So it's the soft glove opening the gate to the soft cage. <laughs> yeah. Um, like you're saying here, uh, the reason that this kind of censorship is more insidious, and I will get into censorship by proxy too, um, because when big tech deplatforms, it's not called censorship, it's called a business decision, or it's their property, they have a right to make these decisions. We'll, we'll unpack that problem later, maybe. Um, but 
this this idea that people don't believe there's censorship um, is because it does. It goes back to these old definitions. And Project Censored's always had a, a more modified definition that even challenges the prior restraint interpretation of the First Amendment. Censorship is anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have free press principles, purports to protect things like free speech and expression. And I know Nolan Higdon and I do some things that are unpopular, um, particularly on the left, is that um, you know we, we don't believe that people should be shut down. We don't believe that, that and again, that seems to be kind of the go-to tactic on the left and the right, is to censor, ban books, to stop people from teaching certain things, or on the other side, stop people from talking about them or uh, control or curate the way people are permitted to talk about certain controversial issues. And granted, the Project Censored has found itself in hot water over the years from across the political spectrum because we simply oppose censorship. It's antithetical to theories of democratic participatory governance. Uh, and there's a lot of problems with that too, but we'll save that for later. Um, so I think what you said is very important. People need to understand how this entire infotainment complex works. It's now also more pernicious than that because it's also a mass data harvester. Um, when, when, you know, this is strange, but you know, half of people in the United States now admit that they use social media to get news and information. And, and that's, that's probably one of the worst things that we could have because the confirmation bias algorithmic background of this kind of technology limits the kind of views that people have exposure to. And usually the reaction someone has to information they've never heard before is, well, that can't be true. I think I'm well-informed. You mentioned one of the magic propaganda words, education, right? Well, what kind of education? What's in the textbook? What is in or out of the classroom? How is information privileged? How is one narrative um, sort of uh, anointed as the truth and another is sanctioned as misinformation. We're living in a time now where we're seeing it coming from across the spectrum. Joe Biden, President Biden's uh, very Orwellian Ministry of Truth, the, 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 the governance, the disinformation governance board held cynically, now, now chaired cynically by Michael Chertoff, co-author of the USA Patriot Act. You mentioned the war on terror. This, this is the person that's now allegedly in charge of policing whatever this organization or agency is going to do. It's not much different than some, some problematic private entity like the Atlantic Council that was tapped to be a fact checker for Facebook, which is actually a lobby arm of NATO, speaking of, on, speaking of only one narrative on Ukraine, right? So this problem runs across media platforms from legacy and establishment press to big tech and social media, which I actually call anti-social media um, to be more accurate. Uh, but but we have our work cut out for us. And once again, I'll repeat, we think that the antidote to this kind of problem is a better type of education that focuses on critical thinking, critical pedagogy, critical media literacy, where we're trying to put people in the driver's seat of their own minds. And that is exactly the opposite of what a lot of our sort of more mainstreamed public education, now I say public in quotes because we know neoliberal policies have worked to privatize it, uh, make it all about rote, rote memorization and regurgitation rather than critical thinking. But these things are all connected. Nolan and I, by the way, unpacked that 50-year problem in the making in United States of Distraction, which is our book we did on City Lights in 2019, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America, what we can do about it. And it does go back a ways. 
So it's very difficult. You know, a lot of people, especially in the liberal class, want to pretend like misinformation, disinformation, and fake news were only a problem when Trump came into office, and therefore he should be punished and deplatformed. You know, for it. And again, this is this kind of reactionary control of the narrative really is another form of propaganda that wants to get people to accept the notion that there's a there's a form of censorship that's good for us. And I totally disagree with that. It was stunning to me to see how Rachel Maudo gained so much popularity jumped the shark, people still ran with this. Mm -hmm. and we have had zero repercussions happen to the New York Times. And I'm thinking of Judith Miller, yeah. whose work was used to justify the war on terror and the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, which were sort of twin projects all along. There was never anything that was coming from pure intelligence. It was always being wafted across media producers. So Judith Miller writes that piece on WMD. And that was not true. No, the New York Times ran that remember that writer they had who plagiarized so much of his work and they ran his ass up the Blair, Jason Blair, I think. Yeah. Yes, yes. He was dealt with. She was not. She was allowed no. to resign. She was awarded uh, free press awards from, you know, liberal established organizations. Uh, for being some great hero of the free press because of, of the backlash she got around other issues. So it's it's pretty it's pretty Orwellian in that regard. Let's since you mentioned Iraq again, let's mention Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges, right? He was disappeared from the New York Times when he became more critical of the foreign policy of the United States. He was disappeared again recently in the censorship by proxy by Roku, DirecTV, and YouTube memory holing RT America. Now, look, we may not always agree with everything that's on RT America. We can understand that it can be both uh, an apparatus of the Russian state as well as a place that, that publishes factual information or airs perspectives that we're simply not permitted to hear in the United States. But what, the thing that is, is so di uh, disturbing is how people cheered on the censorship of this. You know, if we're so concerned and worried about Russia and Ukraine, wouldn't it be important to try to understand what's happening there? No, in the United States, we want to shut down access to those perspectives in that media, which, by the way, one has to begs the question, why should journalists and critics of U.S. foreign policy living in the United States, the alleged land of, free, of the free, have to go to a foreign outlet to have, say, in Chris Hedges' case, uh, you know, a, a rather, not negatively saying this, but a more pedantic kind of interview program, right? I mean, it was just, it's, it, he ran a, an, an, an intellectual literary salon you know, a program, something that you'd see 20 years ago, maybe on PBS at midnight. Um, that's how dangerous it is, though, that they've got to shut this down. Comedian Lee Camp disappeared. Six years of Abby Martin's Empire Files, memory hold by YouTube. You know, that shows great fear. Um, it, but again, this is coming from the private sector. So we've been living in a, in a stream of this kind of fear and de facto censorship that has increased extraordinarily since the events of 9-11. And any kind of crisis that comes along, whether manufactured or hijacked, um, is, is used by the state and the, co the corporate state, let's be more specific, to engage in more acts of censorship and to continuously narrow and winnow what is considered acceptable public discourse and debate. And again, that's very dangerous. It's a very slippery, slippery slope. And I think we're living in an era where there is not only a simultaneous possibility for great information, but there is simultaneously the possibility for great censorship. And I think that's why Project Censored is actually, you know, arguably as important or, or more important now uh, than it was even 40 some years ago. 
Well, I've been the subject quite recently of, of censorship where I live, and I am, am pretty shocked about how it is executed. Now, freedom of speech is something we have written in our Constitution, but this is not written in many countries' Constitution, hence libel cases in the UK come out quite differently than they do in the US. Even the payments, the settlements are quite less. But in Italy, 9,000 cases a year are filed with the police, I'm going to get to that part, for defamation. And in Italy, defamation is a criminal act. 9,000 journalists a year, um, not people, this is just journalists, 9,000 journalists a year are charged with defamation in Italy. My goodness. Now, th this is a way to shut down the media and to silence dissonant voices who might be a, having access to independent journalists who want to write about this. So recently, and I've not even told my wife about this because she'll kill me, but recently I had a visit from the police. I've been working well, no. on a project where I live on the situation with pesticides. Yes. We get fumigated. It's all quite against the law. What happens here, we're supposed to be notified when certain types of pesticides are used so we can actually clear out of our house. That's how dangerous they are. And I started to investigate this when I was poisoned and I had a cyst on my kidney and it was related to the water, it's related to the environment and I tried to get investigations done by this so-called state medical system that failed me in every way. Uh, when I asked to get help on this, I had a lot of kickback from my own doctor. It was quite shocking to see that in a region in the EU where there's so much farming that the doctors don't even know what heavy metal testing they can ask for. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It was pretty shocking given all the agrochemicals in the zone and all the things that could have seeped into our water. But long story short, I, have, I am under serious threat now. And I am pretty shocked about the fact that I did not even know this. And, you know, I'm a, a journalist. I'm aware of what's happened with people like Snowden, who was a whistleblower, or Assange, who really was an editor and journalist in his own right. And the media, as you know, has just sort of wafted over that. They've just been like, we're not going to cover the Assange appeal. We're not going to cover the Assange hearings. It's so little major media coverage, as you know. Yeah, actually, you know, it's very true. The first part of what you're saying is very disturbing. Um, and I'm afraid that, you know, in the United States, there's, we have a different system when it comes to free speech, expression, et cetera, but we have very similar problems and challenges. And we also have, you know, a press that's completely captured by corporate sponsorship, literally billionaire press now, many, 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 many billionaires literally buying and owning, as A.J. Liebling wrote in the New Yorker in the 1960s, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. Well, we've got more and more of that going on. And so they're less and less likely to report about the high crimes of corporations, whether it's big pharma, asbestos, tobacco, um, you go across the spectrum. Um, people are subjected to many, many harmful things with zero accountability. Uh, and, and the press is reluctant to cover it because they are so deeply connected in many cases. The corporate commercial press are so deeply connected to uh, the major Wall Street investment firms, to the major corporations. You know, this is the kind of censorship that we referred to early as a censorship by proxy. 
These places, they don't, we don't need the government telling the New York Times what to do. Uh, these people are, quote, educated by the same institutions that are connected to the military industrial surveillance complex. Um, Colin Powell, uh, when he went in front of, of the United Nations with his mythic tale of weapons of mass destruction, knew. He, in fact, we find out later, said that it was, quote, bullshit, end quote, what he was saying to the United Nations. But that's a great bookend for his career, isn't it? Given that his, his first rise to fame came with the cover-up of the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, uh, only to come full circle to kick us into the incredibly criminal war in Iraq in 2003 that killed over a million people and displaced at least 5 million people as refugees. Um, this is what we, again, we could go on and on and on about the examples and about the challenges. And again, I'm very sorry to hear about what's happening to you personally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm nearly speechless about the the challenge, how challenging that uh, it must be for you. But but I think that it's important that that you we speak out and we we try to talk about these things that happen so people understand that this isn't just crazy talk. This isn't just wild speculation. This, this, this is stuff that happens. Um, this is stuff that happens all the time. Look what just happened in Palestine. You know, uh, a, a reporter literally murdered in broad daylight in cold blood. And the, the, the Western press now has even admitted that Shireen was targeted by an Israeli sniper. There's zero consequences. Um, you know, zero consequences for this. Uh, Khashoggi was chopped up and put in a, a suitcase and carried out of the Sa Saudi embassy. Zero consequences. Zero. Yet Assange rots in Belmarsh prison because he released factual information about our own war crimes. That's right. It's as if we live in a bizarro world where up is down and black is white. And I think we need more people calling attention to it, but also the solution to it is to have a more robust, independent, alternative press and a, an education structure that's based on critical, not ideological thinking. Well, I'm thinking about what you just said, because as you just stated, he's having serious health problems and obviously psychological problems. One thing that ran through my mind all throughout lockdown, which was hell here, was how can anyone get behind the prison complex for nonviolent criminals in the first place after what we've been through? That was harsh to live through. Now. He's in prison for having evidenced war crimes. This is surreal. Like you say, upside down world. I've used that term like 20 times over the last few years yeah. because <laughs> it's just like, it's upside down day. It's upside down world. We're also seeing this. You mentioned the neoliberal press or even neoliberalism. What in the world has gone on where now we've had the left since lockdown throughout the Western world, doesn't matter the country, it's France, it's Portugal, it's the US. It was the left of center people pushing for very draconian lockdowns, very unconcerned about class issues. And that to me raised my eyebrows a few flights. Yeah, I, I think it should. Um, the, the, the way in which that the, and again, I was gonna get to the, to the pandemic as the next crisis, right? As uh, Rahm Emanuel, the neoliberal Rahm Emanuel quipped, um, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, this this has been what regardless what wants to, one wants to argue about the origins of COVID and so forth. Um, the the reality is much like 9/11, uh, COVID 911. I quipped at one juncture where regardless of one what wants to argue about the point of inception, the way in which it's used is to literally usher in 
uh, more of a managed surveillance state, right? Biometric, uh, you know, kind of medical fascism where we have to, to show passports, to go places, to do things, to even function in any way in society. You know, these are very disturbing. And the fact that they're being cheered on um, by the so-called liberal class is probably, you know, what is more alarming to, to me as someone that's, that's been a creature of, uh, of and around the left for some time. Um, but what's even more disturbing is the lack of ability or lack of willingness to engage in parties that are supporting this where they don't even want to discuss it. Um, you know, that, that, that's another form of cultural fascism, just shutting down discussion, shutting down debate, saying anyone you, with, with whom you disagree is guilty of fake news, disinformation, misinformation. We mock people who, quote, do their own research, right? And, and, and again, I get it. You can't go to YouTube University, watch 10 minutes of something and think you know what's going on. But, but, but there's a more subtle thing happening with that kind of insult. It's suggesting that if you don't have a PhD in topic X, you're not permitted to have a thought or an idea about topic X. And that is very problematic. It's very authoritarian. Um, and, and that's something that I think that the left should, should, should oppose, not embrace. And not everyone on the left does, of course, but that's been a very, very disturbing trend. Um, and, and that's something that we've called attention to with cancel culture. Of course, the right is involved in this. They want to, you know, they want to control teachers, ban books. Um, you know, it, it's absurd. But, but, but to suggest that the left somehow is not engaging in their own form of this kind of cancel culture in different ways is, I, you know, is kind of a fairy tale. And I think that we need to call it out wherever we see it across the spectrum if we really believe in the principles of free expression. This makes me think to what we were saying before, in effect, that where neoliberalism has dominated a lot of the communication channels over the past two decades for certain, uh, even under Bush, there was an opportunity for the Democrats in the House. And that, you, you remember those votes for the global war on terror? And it was one lone congresswoman, Barbara Boxer, who said no, right? And all the left of center media ran after the necessary invasion of Iraq and then later Afghanistan. This all became a, a point that we needed to push as good Americans. So it was in a way strange for me to wish to to have witnessed Bush's, you're either with us or against us, and the vomiting of American flags all over New York City, and the fact that people were getting on board with the nationalism stance as a necessary move to, to protect us after 9-11. Even liberals were on board with this, which really shocked me. Not all, of course, but many. Yeah, I mean, look, we keep going back to that, sort of that tectonic shift. I mean, the, the events of 9-11 and the changes that took place afterwards, um, the creation of the, the very Orwellian Department of Homeland Security. Um, I mean, come on, look, look the idea that, that we could euphemize our way, you know, uh, out of all of this, the idea that, that we don't torture people, we just extraordinarily render them. And, um, you know, we, we, we modified our techniques and, you know, we, we talk around these kinds of issues um, we need to be very careful of, and, and by the way, this connects to the present on you said earlier, the, the single narrative on Ukraine, Russia, right? Um, the, the notion that one can be critical of US NATO is not a blanket endorsement of Vladimir Putin 
or other billionaire oligarchs in Russia. By the way, we have our own billionaire oligarchs here in the West and in the United States that we somehow lionize, right? The billionaires in space and look at them go. Uh, there's, they're kind of like heroes of the culture, right? Well, Bill Gates um, got full carpeting during lockdown. Every day there was an article by him or of him. Well, and it's interesting too that he's not a medical expert, but he can have all the opinions and airtime as he wants. But yep. somebody that is a medical expert that has a, an opinion or something that goes against the, 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 the narrative of the big pharma industrial complex, um, you know, that's not allowed. That's verboten. That's fake news. And then worse is that people now call it dangerous misinformation or disinformation where we're not even allowed to have discussions or debates. Um, you know, I'm not talking about platforming known false information. I'm talking about having reasoned discussion and debate about complex issues. And that, that's something that Project Censored favors. That's what we do with the Project Censored show. That's what we do um, in our films. That's what we try to do in our books. Um, it's, it's not about taking a position on topic X or topic Y. The position we take is that we don't think censorship is a way to deal with complicated issues. Back to this problem with Russia, you know, there's horrible draconian things happening inside Russia. 15-year prison sentences for journalists who use the word war or invasion in the wrong context about what's happening in Ukraine. Massive crackdown against LGBTQ, et cetera, that goes on inside Russia. So this is not, and it's not an endorsement of what's happening in Russia to criticize, um, you know, to criticize what, what U.S. NATO positions have been and what the U.S. was doing in Ukraine in 2014 when they were supporting the coup there. So again, but this stuff gets memory hold. And then you, you talk to people who are quote unquote educated and somehow they don't seem to either remember or know about these factual counter narratives. And that's because they mostly read the establishment press. You mentioned Rachel Maddow. I mean, she made a cottage industry out of Russiagate. We've been, you know, we've been going back to the cold war anti-Russia rhetoric, uh, you know, going back to the Obama years. Um, when Biden was vice president. And again, this is not lionizing Putin in any way, but, but this is to say that it's difficult to even speak with, as you say, the educated classes, because they're saying, well, we need to send more money and weapons to Ukraine. And you know, historians like Peter Kuznick you know, have, have long said, like, this is going to establish, establish uh, an escalation that could lead to the kind of apocalyptic nuclear war that we've been trying to prevent for well over half a century. So this is no laughing matter. And if people don't have access to that information, they think you're coming from outer space. They don't believe you and they label you a conspiracy theorist or you're divorced from reality or worse, you're a practitioner of fake news. And now big tech will deplatform you at the behest of the State Department to avoid regulations. That's how far down that hole we're going. Yeah, yeah, well, we're seeing it. In the piece we ran, Katrina van den Heuvel asks, why, in fact, those are the choices. Meanwhile, she writes, a former U.S. Marine Corps general noted war is a racket. So that the media is really not focusing on what actual experts are saying in the field. They just cherry pick their experts, which is not what journalism should be about. If you find an expert that has an opinion, okay, but maybe you want to create an article or an episode based on a debate about those two points. We were never given that, not about the invasion of Ukraine, not about lockdown, not about virus mitigation, not about anything. In fact, there's a thread running through a lot of my questions, which is basically, you know, we've seen that what Judith Miller's work led to. 
we saw what a collusion of various well-reputed publications led to in terms of Russiagate, and they were on board. The New York Times, what, six weeks ago, ran a semi-retraction or semi-statement of their pieces, why they got it wrong, but why are there no committees or any type of oversight to look at the way in which journalism is in bed with government and the way that Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice ran with the WMD lie to get that war cleared in order to what? I mean, of course, conspiracy theories are going to run wild if you can't tell the truth to the people who put you into power. And this is where journalism should be coming in and asking those questions. Watching the White House press conferences, honestly, I sort of miss Trump only because at least they were lively. Now you get this feeling that it's just who is going to be picked with the most obvious question and non-important question even. We're not getting like, what, remember Helen Thomas? Yeah, I actually have an interesting story about that. Sam Husseini, independent journalist, um, does work for uh, Institute for Public Accuracy. He just wrote a piece for our next censored book. Um, he used to have a project called Washington Stakeout, the Washington Stakeout, where he would go to press conferences and, you know, ask the really difficult questions. You might remember, um, and, and, and actually he was, but he eventually was kicked out of various press conferences, lack, couldn't get access anymore, you know, because he would ask these difficult questions. He told me a story that, you know, he had run into Helen Thomas at one point and, and, and was actually talking about Israel-Palestine and, and suggested that, you know, after that they had had these ongoing discussions, that that's when Thomas started to ask those difficult questions. And then that's when President Obama decided not to call on her. And you know, this we're talking about a, a venerable journalist of many, many decades, the senior member of the White House press corps, effectively censored and kind of ousted. You know, you, we, when you brought up Helen Thomas's name, that's the first thing I thought of. Husseini also is the person that got kicked out of the Helsinki uh, conference when he he was talking about. He, he's the one that raised the sign to to, to ask a poignant question, and they kicked him out. Um, uh, of the tr of Trump's press conference because you're not allowed to ask those tough questions and so now we're back to education and now we're back to how journalists are trained they they, they seem to be trained to not ask certain third rail questions it's as you know they don't even need to be told in the editorial room if you get a job at a big place like MSNBC and you're Rachel Maddow no one needs to tell you what to do you wouldn't have the job if you didn't know what to do because that's how those institutions work. They're deeply connected, they're deeply embedded. You know, after 9-11, they literally started using the phrase embedded journalist. They're not even hiding it anymore. The idea that you can just embed a journalist and they're somehow gonna tell you what's really going on after they go through three rounds of military and then corporate media censors. So, you know, we literally fill books with examples of censored and underreported stories every year. Projectcensored.org, you can see a list going back to 1976. We analyze the junk food news, news abuse propaganda, but we also talk about solutions and advocate media democracy in action, where we highlight organizations that are doing this kind of great work, journalists that are willing to ask the right questions. I know we keep riffing on the post 9-11 world, I can't help but think of Christina Borgeson, Into the Buzzsaw right? Um, Feet to the Fire, the two books that she did about censored journalists after 9-11. Remember Dan Rather? 
You know, uh, the guy that was on the David Letterman show talking about journalists lining up behind President George W. Bush, he later had a big mea culpa. He later said he made a huge mistake. Since we're talking about CBS and Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite tried to cover the Watergate scandal and the Nixon White House called his, his boss and asked them to tone it down or not run it. That's a direct violation of the First Amendment, right? And so Bush did the same. Bush did the same with the New York Times when Mark Klein, the whistleblower for AT&T, outed in San Francisco that AT&T was spying on people through cell phone networks. The Bush White House asked these newspapers to sit on the story for a year till they could scramble to figure out their narrative on it. We know this happens. Julian Assange is exhibit A, right? We know that there are stories that the government doesn't want us to know. And the corporate media often work in tandem with them to be sure that we don't know it, or that if we do, they're out ahead of the game and they control the narrative interpretation of it. And then they begin the divide and conquer game. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Matt Tybee's book, Hate Inc., it could be expanded into a miniseries starring (laughs) Stephanie Powers, remember her. And I do think that it's about hate, it's about division, and one thing... I have ethical problems with as a journalist is how I use social media in the sense of I use it as a billboard, but as Mm -hmm. you well know, social media is a cesspit Mm -hmm. and people, you pointed out an an interesting statistic for over three years now, more Americans are getting their news from social media. So it's a big coup of sorts that the government, major media and social media enterprises each have a hand in the pocket of the other in terms of vested interests, what is allowed to proliferate, the Hunt and Biden computer story. What a scandal. It is a scandal politically, just for starters, not even going into Hunter Biden's monthly checks. And we're concerned about Russia only now, not then, of course, right? I mean, it's amazing. The complicity and the kind of double narrative that the media hands us, because If you read enough across the spectrum of media, even outside of your own country, you can see some of the ways in which we're being set up a very interesting stage, a theater of sorts. And of course, they don't care about Russia when it's Hunter Biden. They care about Russia, who's been clamoring for a decade about not only Ukraine, but they want NATO away from its borders, which... If the shoe were on the other foot, and it has been, our own country has been going over to many countries, even covertly, you know, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, they were covertly supporting dictatorships, junta militar. My God, I was living in Nicaragua and got shot at by the Contras, whose bullets were bought by the Bush family. So the media is really not to be trusted yet. All my friends who will disagree with me about a post I made or an article I published, and they get upset, but this, you know, that's not the Democrats' fault. And what is with it that the news has now become like watching a football or a hockey match? We no, that's you're very correct about that. And you know, Nolan Higdon and I have discussed that both in the United States of Distraction and our Let's Agree to Disagree book. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing now is when polled, Americans' greatest fear isn't the nuclear annihilation that could come from 
from you know Putin's imperialist land grab in Ukraine in violation of international law. Um, it's other Americans, right? They're afraid of other Americans. It's as if we can't sit across the table and have discussion, debate, and constructive dialogue about the things that are happening uh, in, in our country. And that's that's a travesty. But that's also been cheerled by the media. You mentioned Taibbi's Hey Inc. book. You know, that's what sells, right? When you treat the public, when, when information sort of comments on things happening in society like it's some faux reality TV circus or a sporting match or a double worldwide wrestling, like, you know, like a wrestling match, this is the kind of culture you get, right? You go, you, you go down to the least common denominators, you go to the base elements of human emotion, confirmation bias, Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, these are the thing, we're swimming in this chaos that is very toxic. And unfortunately, um, because the establishment media and social media are very ubiquitous and readily accessible by design, and they are, and social media has particularly been designed by Silicon Valley working with the same people that were responsible for developing casinos and gambling machines for dopamine hits to hit addiction, uh, so people stay addicted to platforms. Um, this is, again, this is something that's happening on purpose. This isn't something that's a happy accident or a whoops, a byproduct. This, the information war is very real. And yeah, I know Alex Jones has info wars and, and he, you know, people say, oh, well, that's, he, 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 you know, that, that's nonsense and he's fake news. Listen, the real problem here that we all know is that broken clocks are right twice a day. Um, Jones spews a lot of hate and nonsense. But he was right about the surveillance state. He was right about government censors. He was right about torture. Um, I mean, again, I'm using that as an example because that's a very problematic figure who has a very tarnished history when it comes to accountability or having integrity in information delivery. But, and this is where we get into trouble. If you, and you did this already, the New York Times also has a problematic track record of publishing fake news and disinformation and propaganda. So. We, this is why we can't just trust one source or one outlet. We have to diversify our information stream. We have to diversify the kinds of people that we talk to in our lives. You know, that's a magic word. We, we need to really diversify. We need to look beyond. And I'm not talking about what the, the current regime of the diversity police, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the neoliberal top-down sort of corporate model of, of co-opting civil rights movements. I, you know, I, I'm talking about real diversity where we're actually hearing different views from different places and different perspectives that we can actually use to understand uh, and, and better navigate the, so, you know, the social order of things. So we need a free press, not a billionaire press, and we need critically media literate citizens. But, and it, these are things that are, these are teachable and learnable. And we try to practice what we teach and the things that we put in our books are designed to give people what we think is, you know, more of a we the people kind of education. You know, it's not corporate, it's not managed top down, it's not, hey, NewsGuard told me this is fake news. Well, okay, who's NewsGuard? Well, that's a bunch of people from, you know, the deep state, state department, big tech deciding that Fox News gets a green shield because they, they're a reputable establishment organization, but counterpunch or naked capitalism gets a red one or, or, or mint press news gets, gets a red shield for being fake news propaganda. You know, there is a major effort to curate and control narratives afoot in our culture, in our society right now. So this is the time to push back 
This is the time to not play games with free speech arguments and free expression arguments where our confirmation bias allows us to tacitly accept censorship when we agree with it, but somehow decry it in other circumstances. That's not what it really means to support a free press. And I don't agree with everything Noam Chomsky has ever said or done in his, his life, uh, but one of the things he said that's always stuck with me is that you can't have two positions. Uh, there, you, there's only two positions you can have on free speech. You're either for it or against it. Um, which I find very curious because I, I understand hate laws and gray zone of, of, of hate speech and these things. What I would argue, however, is that we always have to be mindful of the slippery slope that it may take us on. Well, this is where your latest book with Nolan comes in, where you two discuss the importance of media literacy, because a lot of people are thinking, what's that? I know how to read. <laughs> but you you, yeah. you go into it in your book, and it cuts across a lot of what has been many call cancel culture, but it's more woke culture because not all wokeness ends in a canceling. But you discuss at one point the idea of conflating discussions of consciousness with an ism and conflating colorblindness with the absence of racism. And of course, the mighty fragility, D'Angelo, etc. But there's something very interesting here that cuts across all these issues we've talked about, even back to Watergate 9-11, but the idea that media has been driving a certain narrative that it even tiptoes around sometimes to give the faux presentation of objectivity, but all along we've been told one line. We've been told one story. And it seems to me that whether it's 9-11 or the disappearance and reappearance of Biden's laptop and his relationship to a very large Russian company that spends an enormous amount of money on something that he does nothing to earn should be of concern given his father's position. Uh, the election, the overemphasis on Donald Trump in January 6th, we've gotten this over and over and over from the media where we're given a drumbeat of where to hate next. It was almost like we were just getting a lockdown, now we've got to hate Russia. Well, it's outrage culture, right? Yes, like we're, yes. We're, 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 we live in such an outrage culture where, I mean, it's just, it's just exhausting. It's culturally exhausting to run from one thing we hate to another. And it's as if we, we and the kind of hope we have is, is, is like a faux elixir, right? You know, Obama was the latest iteration of, uh, you know, Reagan City on the Hill, you know, also running on that that kind of a campaign. Of course, Clinton, you know, kind of ran on that kind of idea as well. It's because it works, right? You, you, you vacillate from fear to hope. It's like a, le it's a lever. You go back and forth, back and forth every four years. Um, and it's pretty exhausting. And the, the, the way in which media has devolved in, in places like the United States is it, it, it is exactly what, what Taibbi argued. It's hate incorporated, hate sells. Fear sells. Fear is, is, a, is a control mechanism. People can be more easily controlled looking for a hopeful savior when they're fearful. You know, Barry Glasner, a sociologist, wrote, you know, I don't know what, over 20 years ago, The Culture of Fear, that actually that book came to prominence because of Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine film, I believe. No offense to Glasner, but um, that's what popularized his book in many ways. But the, the, the book was a brilliant, it has a brilliant, brilliant premise. It's that why Americans are afraid of the wrong things. 
right? I mean, we, 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 we're not, we're less concerned about the chemicals in our water and in our food and the plastic and the, in the, in the seas and the pollution in the air and that the military is the biggest polluter in the world and makes us less safe than almost any other threat other than climate crisis, which people want to stick their head in the sand about. Um, and, but, but this is what keeps people, um, this is what immobilizes people. Fear is an immobilizer. And hope, the faux hopes and elixirs that are peddled are uh, their dead ends. They're long dead end roads that take us to the, to the next election, right? And, and that, that's the kind of thing, that's the, that's the political theater in the US that's been going on for decades. And you mentioned something really important, I think, about how we have this myopic center right where we're allowed to vigorously debate uh, between red and blue pills um, but we're not allowed to talk about anything outside of that narrow frame that's set by the corporate state. And this is why diversifying our media diet and getting into independent alternative views and news that's transparently factually sourced, news that comes from other places, that's why it's so important that we spread that news. You mentioned using social media as a billboard. I think I do the very same thing. I, I do that's, I mean, I don't like Facebook and I, I hate Twitter. But I'm on Facebook because I use it as a billboard, right? I, I use it as a place to to spread some ideas, and you know I haven't been censored or deplatformed on Facebook or Twitter yet. I guess I'm not doing a good job, um, but I think it's important to try to share that information and not take a defeatist attitude that nothing can be done. Um, I think that's also a dangerous attitude, which is again why we write about in our books. We write about no, you can do something about this. You can do, you can, you can be in favor of civil rights. You can be in favor of what it means to be woke in the traditional cultural sense, but not performatively so, right? Not as a meth, not as something that's mandated by management, right? And then again, you mentioned D'Angelo, that whole grifter culture, you know, where it's like they're peddling these quick fixes so institutions can check boxes and they won't be liable for things stupid people say in their institutions. Um, but that's dangerous too, because that also doesn't address the seriousness when we really do have strains of racism or sexism and misogyny. These are very real uh, authoritarian ideologies that do exist in our culture. And, and I think that we do a disservice to them when we think that you, know, you can watch this three hour seminar and everything's gonna be cool because the school won't be liable anymore. You know, and I, I do think that even though some of these folks may have been well-intentioned, I think some of these folks, particularly like like D'Angelo, um, you know, I think they're they're doing some grifting, um, and and I, I think that and, and by the way, you know, to say that out loud, you know, also puts me in the crosshairs of of many many liberals um, who want to say, oh well, you're you're just a closet racist. Her thesis is proved. Um, well, that's the kind of trap that the press likes to set up for all kinds of issues. If you say anything to question the narrative on Russia Ukraine, you're pro Putin. If you, say, if you say anything to question um, the public health narrative around the COVID pandemic, you're, uh, you're a naysayer, you're a science denier. You know, th those, are, those traps are set by design to stifle expression, stifle debate, stifle critical thinking, and they are the hallmarks of a fascist culture. And I think that that is what needs to be addressed more directly. The whole issue of censorship itself needs to be addressed more directly because it gets wrapped in a cloak of sort of this um, parental nanny state like, well, it's we're doing it for your own good. 
Um, so, you know, your uncle so-and-so is going to espouse nonsense from Fox. So we've got to fix, we've got to get rid of Tucker Carlson. Well, I've got news for you. That's not going to change the, the ignorance in our culture right? What changes ignorance is knowledge, is wisdom, is information, is constructive dialogue, is critical listening, empathy, cultural competence. There are many, you're an anthropologist, you know this better than most people, you know? Um, we really need to embrace the better parts of, of humanity that's produced knowledge and wisdom over centuries and not just wallow in, in the shallow cesspool of sensationalism. Well, people are drawn to it. I used the image earlier of a football match, but we could use many other. You used another addictive substance, Paragon. I think there's so many. People are hooked on telenovelas. But why is it that they go, oh, my God, the shooting in Texas? Isn't that part of the problem, too? Why are you watching the news if at the end you just want to say, oh, the Russians are bad, Putin's bad? Like, you wouldn't accept such a backstory from friends in your life, you know, you want to hear more details. You don't want, oh, he's bad, you know, but we accept that when we know that political situations are much more than just to use one of the transgender movement's favorite words, non-binary. It's not just this or that. Often it's a polluted history of problems between the two nations or the two people. And then it, you know, uh, uh, gets up to, well, we have Russia doing what they said they were going to do years ago. This isn't a surprise to anyone who's been reading the news, but yet many people go to the news and they want to almost be set in the direction of just seeing. Now you can have that as your goal as a media reader and, and watcher of videos online, but it's not a very strong goal to have if you're not prepared to back it up with the ammunition of read 20 papers a day then, or at least 20 different sources for your news. Like do something that you can actually walk away with and wonder if what you've just read is accurate. You set up so many, um, so, so many uh, wonderful points of, of conversation. The one I wanted to hit on was, it's interesting that we accept this kind of information top down because of the medium, as McLuhan would say, the medium is the message. We, we accept from perfect strangers like Brian Williams, who's you know just lied about all kinds of things at NBC for years and somehow gets let go and brought back, you know, as if, well, did they forget that he did that yet? Let's bring him back. Um, it, it, but yet we would never accept such nonsense from our neighbor or from a family member, right? We would challenge it. We would vigorously say, where did you get that information? A lot of that is part of the conditioning, right? And, you know, the, the culture of expertise that came out of the 50s had good points and bad points. Obviously, one of the bad points, right, is that, is, is the appeal to authority and the appeal to false authority. And because people are experts in things doesn't mean we should automatically agree or disagree with them. Of course, we should hear people out. But the idea that you can't somehow ask legitimate questions of experts without having expertise in a field is, is rubbish. Um, asking the right questions is, is, is something that anybody is capable with if they have a critical background. Um, journalists in particular, you, we, we riffed on this earlier. We need to have journalists modeling the critical nature of asking the right questions. Journalists, you know, the, the media is sort of like the university of the public airwaves, which aren't public anymore, and many aren't on airwaves, it's cyberspace, but journalists are, are supposed to be didactic creatures. They're supposed to be curious, and they're supposed to be 
at least professionally adversarial, the, uh, collegially adversarial, shall we say, um, meaning they should ask the, 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 the elephant in the room questions first, and they should not take nonsense for an answer. And we should be, uh, we should be setting up examples of people, and we do this at Project Censored. So the top 25 stories every year are examples of intrepid independent journalists that we think exercise free press principles that we need the most. They are out there. However, they're very difficult to find if you don't know about them. And you're likely never to accidentally bump into them because the corporate and establishment press don't want you to. And they'll even go so far as attack people who are entertainers because they're losing audience share, like in the case of Joe Rogan and Spotify. You know, that, that had nothing to do with, with oh, well, Joe Rogan's dangerous. It had to do with the fact that he had an audience size, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times that of what someplace like CNN would have. And that's what this is about. This is about capitalism and profits and controlling narratives. It's not about Joe Rogan's a dangerous person. And it's interesting, though, because Rogan is almost too big to cancel and we saw that even though many of his episodes have been disappeared yeah this is insane and i'll tell you why i mentioned this because one of the other issues that i work on i work on many issues but i've been working for a decade now on the transgender lobby which is a completely bullshit lobby from the foot up or head down as you look at it um and it's it's been eviscerated in so many places within the UK. And when I say places, I mean governmental bodies. Who is in the parliament who makes money from medicine? Well, I think that question is fundamental. I mean, and I know it sounds reductionist or essentialist in some ways, the follow the money, the who benefits. I know that at some point those turn into, you know, a trope of sorts. But look, a lot can be learned but, you know, my good friend and colleague, Peter Phillips, wrote Giants, the global power elite a few years ago, um, that really t- peeled the curtain back behind the global elites, the banking firms, the hedge funds. You know, this is the group of people that decide where all the capital goes and flows or where it doesn't worldwide. And he went and looked at the boards of directors, the investors, the stock portfolios. And, you know, it starts to look like this super complicated web or nexus of people that all have connected interest. They all have mutually intertwined interests. And these are the people that you see at the World Economic Forum. These are the people that go back to the founding of the WTO. Uh, this is when we saw, you know, the neoliberal beginnings of NAFTA and so forth. You know, these are these people are very influential. Um, and again, th- this th- the flip side of this is people want to say, oh, it's the Rothschilds yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you know, then there's the whole anti-Semitic tropes that go on. I mean, this is just an idiotic distraction. It's used to weaponize the entire discussion, period. You know, when people start talking that way, I'm just like, please no. Like, please, please think about what you're saying. And I direct them to books like Peter's because they say, look, this is not like a redux of the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is, you know, racist trash fiction coming out of Russia in the 20s. This is an actual political, sociological deep dive into asking the tough questions like you just did. Who are these people in parliament? What are, who, Washington, DC, who are these people on K Street? Why are there scores of lobbyists for each person in office? Um, why does money and dark money seem to run all the shows? Why did Chester Bonin get recalled in San Francisco because he was it was backed by a, 
a, a national billionaire right-wing movement to get rid of somebody that they just didn't like. Um, and then there was, low, I mean, again, and, and by the way, the whole narrative that San Francisco is a failed city is also the product of a neoliberal corporate press because it's not borne out by the facts, right? And again, that's what people have a hard time dealing with is facts. And one thing that we do to ignore facts, right, is we use confirmation bias. And that's why I keep going back to that. Nolan and I talk all about that. We have a whole chapter in our book on fallacies, cognitive biases. These are things people need to understand. These are things that people need to learn about. And then that will start leading people to asking questions like who benefits and what conflicts of interest exist between the people that I can't see. Look, we'll go back 100 years to Eddie Bernays. He said out loud in the book Propaganda from 1928, these people that are behind the curtain, the, the people that you've never heard of are the ones that pull the wires, that control the public mind. Engineering consent, manufacturing consent, engineering opinion. Um, these are strategies, and of course, Bernays was a nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he used a lot of his uncle's ideas to figure out how do you convince people of things? How do you get, how, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking of Voltaire right now, right? Um, you know, when, when, you know, in order for people to accept such obvious, blatant, ludicrous atrocities, you have to get them to believe sheer pablum, nonsense, pap, rubbish, garbage, bullshit. Why? Well, this is a thing in the run up to lockdown, people were outraged about what was going on in many places. And I said, look, we've been under this experiment already. You know, governments, NGOs, uh, the UN, you've got major gay and lesbian charities who have convinced gay and lesbians that a woman can have a dick that a man can have a vagina. Now, if you can convince people of the most insane thing, because I think in 10 years, this is all gonna be looked at as a very bad chapter of history that those people wanna forget, but they were able to convince people of the most basic element of our human existence that men can have vaginas. Here's, a, here's here, I think the, uh, there's another issue connected to this that I think that this, this one is taking, this one is something that turns into the sensationalist Oh, that's more interesting to debate and discuss. I mean, the unfortunate reality is that um, LGBTQIA plus groups have been targeted, have been marginalized, have been censored, um, have a history of violence committed against them around the world, not just in the United States. And it, it's painful sometimes to see that you know cherry-picked elements or arguments within them are what gets all the attention instead of the actual human rights abuse history that's actually involved with it. And we can see the same kind of thing coming out of the civil rights movements around race um, coming out of the 1960s and 1970s. And we mentioned that a little bit earlier. It's not because I think that, um, you know, people like D'Angelo and Kendi are not um, well-intentioned and, and don't understand problems of, of, of potential systemic racism. I think it's the way in which it's, they, it's almost as if they, they willingly go along with the fact that this has now been used and co-opted as a way to performatively, not just not actually seriously address inequality, but to pretend and create the veneer institutionally and the illusion that we quote, have solved these problems. It's time to move on. Buy your shirt, you know, go to Wells Fargo and, and you know, get the Wells Fargo rainbow shirt or you know, get the coffee mug with the rainbow on it from Starbucks, and we've now somehow solved the problem. Capitalism eats everything. It doesn't care, and it spits out garbage, and it destroys literal people's movements for, for human rights and equality. And again, that's also why 
it is necessary for the corporate media and the powers that be to constantly keep us divided. And one of the easiest ways to keep us divided is to focus on identity politics rather than class control. And, and again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about identity. I'm saying that when we, and look, Adolf Reed, African-American Marxist economist, has been criticized by many of these movements. I mean, again, don't just take my word for it, right? There are, there are people within these political identified groups that because they don't tow this top-down narrative, they're somehow now race traitors or they don't get the story or they're creating bigger problems. And, and I think that we should be listening to people like Adolf Free Jr. more than some of the others because they're the ones saying and you know, both and not either or. And that's again, a big thing we explore in our book is when you have constructive dialogue that's based on cultural competency, you have the both and. You learn quickly that either or is a fallacious technique of divide and conquer, and that usually things are more complicated than that. When media cheerlead the either or narrative of any topic, they are doing a great disservice to a society that purports to be self-governing. Adolf Fried has taken slack both on the issue of gender identity and on the issue over COVID, if you recall what yeah. happened to him in Philadelphia last year. Yeah, again, you know, the, I'm always suspicious anytime someone wants to come in and literally start policing the narrative. Right. Um, anytime that there has to be a set of rules about, um, you know, the things you're not allowed to discuss. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's like I guess the 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 thrash metal punk rocker in me going back to my teenage years, you know, uh, late, later coined uh, really well by Rage Against the Machine as they were raging in the machine and, and at it, I guess inside. Um, you know, the fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Uh, it's sort of when I hear someone trying to tell me why I can't address something, I immediately begin to question their motives. I immediately began to question their commitment to, um, you know, really wanting to learn and wanting to teach both simultaneously. And I think that that's an important thing to come back on. And I know we're running out of time. Um, we've been chatting for a while, but I wanted to come around at least to the to 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 the to something that we can do about this. And I think that we're all students and that we're all teachers. And I think that it's very important to not succumb to the us, them mentality where people where we have disagreements are somehow the equivalent of warriors of days of old, you know, um, you know, like everyone that we're, everyone with whom we have a disagreement uh, is somehow an Imperial Genghis Khan um, coming after our, you know, uh, we're, they're gonna destroy our, or they're gonna kill us, literally. You know, and, and the thing that's more painful too, I would argue is that we can agree uh, with so many uh, about so many things with people, but we tend to focus so much on the one area of disagreement, and we blow that up and pretend like, and then we are, we allow ourselves to make caricatures of other people that don't represent the diverse nature of who they are, or how diverse or complicated a subject can be, and the, the what education can do doesn't always. But what it can do is it can platform conversations, debates, and discussions that might be contentious and that might be difficult to have. But it also shows that at the end of the day, we should be, the effort shouldn't just be I'm right, you're wrong, no matter what. It should be, I'd like to explain why I think the things I do and try to find alignment 
with some of the values that we may have with other people where there are disagreements. In other words, we'd like to build bridges, not walls. And we have a culture of wall builders, quite literally, uh, whether it's Trump or, or Biden, who was just suggesting maybe he should continue building the walls, right? So this is another one of those liberal ostrich, ostrich issues where there, there are still kids in cages and there still is wall stuff. But somehow, since the team blue is in, that all disappeared and you know, all the pink pussy hat people could go back to brunch um, thinking that we don't need to hold feet to the fire. And I remember that was one of the big slogans, you know, after the Democrats installed Biden, you know, and crushed the, the Sanders campaign once again, um, that somehow, well, we just get on board because it's not Trump. I mean, the whole last election was not Trump. In fact, I still call the, these folks President not Trump and Vice President not Pence right, rather than call them Biden and Harris, because that more represents what they stood for in many ways in a propagandistic sense, even though there's great similarity in the ideologies and the politics of these people. Now, look, you might window dress some difference along the lines of identity politics, but when it comes to things like war, the economy, trade, you know, these people have a lot in common. And I think that it's that kind of analysis that we really need to to focus on. And that's what we need. We need to kind of keep our eyes on the prize on what those folks are doing. Again, this year, the book won't come out till December, but Andy Roth and I just finished the intro to State of the Free Press 2023. We called it State of the Free Billionaire Press where the word free was strike through crossed out because these folks are controlling the narrative to control their policies to increasingly make it difficult to even have debate or discussion about what's happening and they force us or corral us into the soft cage pen of what they call open debate, which is an illusion. And if we don't disillusion ourselves around who controls narratives, we are never going to be able to address it in a way that leads to a more just equitable society. We need a free press. We need people telling us difficult truths. And we also need to listen where people have different perspectives. So I know we have our work cut out for us. I know that it isn't easy, um, but I appreciate that people like you uh, and your site are out there uh, re really trying to, to show by example uh, how some of those things can happen. Given your knowledge of history and journalism, we should have maybe also touched upon the fact that most people, and I include myself in this because I had to read up on this, are just not aware that the press in the West at least originated around the shipping trade. And I did not know this. And this was about, you know, owners of shipping companies wanting to get the word on the street about, quote unquote, what was news, but related to their businesses. And they controlled it from the very beginning. And it originated even in Italy and in England. And you had a lot of these shippers running news bills. Yeah, well, it's connected. I mean, it's an interest, right? And the idea that, you know, the professionalization of journalism, quote unquote, about this pretense toward objectivity. I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with the principle of objectivity, but no one's technically objective. Um, and so that was the beginning of the great ruse, as it were, um, to, to make it such, well, if it's coming from these established institutions, um, you know, they're objective. They are professionally trained to get at the truth. And so that's where this de facto trust mechanism is built in from the culture of expertise. Um, where people are less likely to question, you know, those type of sources. And now, um, since those organizations and institutions performatively co-opted objectivity 
We report, you decide, fair and balanced, the most trusted name in news, all the news that's fit to print, democracy dies in darkness. Well, those are all mantras of corporate establishment news outlets that are involved in narrative curating, propaganda, and censorship by design, right? And, and Herman and Chomsky's propaganda moder filter talked about ownership advertising, elite sourcing, newsmakers, news shapers, flack, and ideology as the main filters through which these very institutions disseminate, gather and disseminate information. And so your historical root of it is certainly not lost uh, on me. And I wish more people would kind of go back and connect those dots. But that's why it's important to teach people these things, to give them the opportunity to think about what that means.